0: Almighty God and most merciful Father, we humbly submit ourselves and fall down before your majesty, asking you from the bottom of our hearts that this seed of your word now sown among us may take such deep root that neither the burning heat of persecution cause it to wither, nor the thorny cares of this life choke it. But that as a seed sown in good ground, it may bring forth thirty, sixty, or a hundredfold. As your heavenly wisdom has appointed, we believe in the power of your word, and we know your word does not return to you void. Hear our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Our scripture that we're reading this morning is from Luke chapter 23, verses 39 to 43. Would you now give your attention to the hearing of the word of the Lord this morning? Remember me when you come into your kingdom. He replied, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can put up that first slide, please. That painting, of course, that you see there is Rembrandt's The Return of the Prodigal Son. Rembrandt, of course, is one of the Dutch masters, and as a Dutch reform pastor, every chance I get, I try to point out the importance of the Dutch masters, particularly Rembrandt. This is, indeed an amazing painting. I love this painting. It's, it hangs in my house. It hangs at the bottom of the stairs. As I come down every morning,
1: I see that painting confronting me. Take a look at that painting. What does it evoke
0: in you? What do you think of when you look at that painting? What emotions or thoughts or ideas come to your mind? What do you think about yourself and about God as you look into that masterpiece? Keep that in mind. We'll come back to that painting later on in the sermon. You can take that slide down. This morning we continue our series in the seven sayings of our Lord Jesus Christ upon the, clo- on the cross, the seven last words of Jesus. We're digging deep into these last words because last words have significance, they have importance, they have gravity, and they have meaning, and particularly when they are the last words of our Savior. And so this morning we come now to the second among his last words, and those second words were these. Truly, I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. Now, those words were spoken, of course, as we've already heard this morning, by Jesus to one of the two criminals that were there being crucified alongside of him. And I want to think about those words this morning. I want you to reflect and consider those words this morning. And I want you to understand three things about those words this morning. Three things. This is our outline this morning. I want you to understand the substance of those words. I want you to understand the scope of those words. And I want you to understand the solace of those words the substance, the scope, and the solace of those words. So let's look at those three things together this morning. First, let's consider the substance of his words. And the question here is, what exactly was Jesus promising to this criminal through those words? What was the substance of the promise, the essence of what Jesus was promising him? And the answer, of course, and I think it's relatively widely embraced, is that Jesus was promising him salvation. That he was promising him salvation. And it's, it's there in the words that Jesus uses. There are cues and clues to us here that that's exactly what Jesus was offering and sharing and giving to this man on that day. First, Jesus uses that word today. A word which is in the Luke and. A writing in in Luke's gospel particularly connected with the idea of the receipt of salvation. Jesus often follows today with a proclamation of salvation. We see it when Jesus is at Zacchaeus' house in Luke 19.9. Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house. It's that grant of immediacy. That this is the one who can give this and give it now. The criminal said, remember me when you come into your kingdom, this future expectation. But Jesus responds in a greater way, in a surpassing way, and says to him, no, today, today you will know what salvation is. Today you will be with me in paradise. When he spoke those words, he was speaking of the blessing of eternal salvation. I'm not sure what the criminal was asking for, whether he fully understood his request, but I do know by Jesus' words that what he received, the substance of Jesus' promise, was none other than salvation itself. And of course, We see that too, that idea of salvation, in another word that Jesus uses there in that promise, and that is the word paradise. Today you will be with me in paradise. Now when you hear that word, what do you immediately think of? You think of the Garden of Eden, and rightly so. It is the word that's used for the garden. It's the place that we hear about in Genesis, the place that is where people, humanity, communed with God. But in the New Testament, that word paradise took on a broader meaning. It took on a meaning of being in the place of the righteous, being in the place of salvation. It, is, it took on a broader meaning of the idea of heaven itself, that what we would call heaven, paradise. Paul uses it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Verses 3 and 4, he says, I know that such a person, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows, was caught up into paradise and heard things that are not to be told, that no mortal is permitted to speak. Paradise is the place of the righteous. It is the place of salvation. And so the substance of Jesus' promise here is, a, is salvation itself, eternal blessedness. That's the substance of his words. Secondly, consider the scope of his words, the scope of them. And the question here is, to whom did this promise apply? Who are the beneficiaries of the words of Jesus spoken here? Who is this promise for? And of course, it is obvious and most immediate that this is a promise for this criminal, right? There's a a personal nature. This is spoken to a real person in history. And so at first glance, it seems to be a personal, idiosyncratic promise. But on another level, this promise takes on a broader scope. It has a broader group of beneficiaries. Because this criminal on the cross is not just a single individual. He also has this representative role. There is an Adamic quality about this criminal on the cross. And I believe Luke intended us to consider it that way. There's something typological about this criminal. There's something about him that is like us in a spiritual sense. Like that criminal on the cross, we are under a death sentence. We are convicted in a spiritual sense. As Paul reminds us, all have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. We're all born on spiritual death row, and so in this criminal, we can see ourselves. We can see the criminal and endemic terms and typological terms, and many scholars have noted this, noted the intentionality of Luke to make us think that way. If you think about Luke's gospel, where does he begin the genealogy of Jesus? He goes all the way back to Adam, unlike Matthew, right? He goes all the way back to Adam because Luke's gospel is for the world. It's for all humanity. And so he takes us back to Adam. And I believe here, as Jesus is on the cross, Luke is once again taking us back to Adam. And he's using that word, paradise. The word paradise to remind us of the Adamic quality of what's going on in this moment. That it's bigger than one person. A clear reference to the Garden of Eden. A clear reference to the place of Adam. What Luke is telling us here is that the last Adam, the second Adam, is reversing the curse of the first Adam by bringing a son of Adam into the paradise that Adam lost. It's a glorious image. If you think about it, what's happening on the cross, what Jesus is doing. Here is an eschatological page being turned. Here is a new age. Here is paradise being burst open by Jesus. Typified through one sinner entering the kingdom of God, one son of Adam. Raymond Brown put it this way by bringing this wrongdoer with him into paradise, Jesus is undoing the results of Adam's sin, which barred access to the tree of life. Brandon Crow, in his wonderful book on the last Adam, writes this of this text. He says, Whereas Adam was exiled from paradise because of his sin, Jesus, as the obedient last Adam, has the authority to reopen paradise for those who believe, even the brigand at the cross next to him. It is a mark of first fruits. The mark of the first fruits of the work of Christ, the opening, the floodgates of paradise by Jesus, this criminal on the cross. Reminds us of ourselves, reminds us that we are sons and daughters of Adam. And so the promise to this criminal is a promise to us. It's the promise that Paul and Barnabas proclaimed in the book of Acts to the Philippian jailer. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You and your whole household. The scope of this promise that Jesus gave on that day extends far beyond the one criminal on the cross. It extends to all the sons and daughters of Adam because Jesus Christ has opened the way to paradise. To whom does this promise apply? It applies to you, to you and to me, to all who call upon the name of the Lord. That's the scope of His words. This morning, we have seen the substance of his words. These words are about salvation, about eternal blessedness with Christ. We have seen the scope of his words. These words, this promise is to all who will call upon his name. And now, thirdly, this morning, and finally, the solace of his words. The solace of his words. And the question here is, how do these words of Jesus comfort us today? What do they mean for us? What comfort should you find this morning in those last words of Jesus to the criminal on the cross? Now, at this point in the sermon, you're thinking, "Well, oh, Pastor Anthony went through those first two points pretty fast. You think, oh, this might be a short one this morning. Although, well, uh, I'm going to disappoint you here. Yeah, I want to park a little bit here. I want to linger here. I want to dig deep here because these are the beautiful things of the Gospel. Because here is found your comfort. Let me unfold the comfort, the solace of His words. And I have two things here, two ways where we should find comfort in these words this morning. In this whole account this morning. How it speaks to you and to me today. First, These words comfort us by reminding us of the true nature of the gospel, the true nature of the gospel, that salvation is by grace alone. This is the object lesson, par excellence, that salvation is by grace alone. I've already talked to you about how this criminal has a typological role, right? How he represents this edemic quality, this representation of all of us, of all of humanity. But there were two criminals on that day, and I think both of them have a representative role. They both remind us of the nature of humanity. They show us the two categories, the binary nature of the world in a spiritual sense as God sees it. There are two categories of people, two identities. You are either in Christ or you are in Adam. You are either in Christ or you are in Adam. And in those two criminals, we see that very difference. That really only difference. Illustrated for us. Think about those two thieves, those two criminals. In so many ways, they were alike. They were both sentenced to death. They were both being crucified. If you read back into the story, they were both at once taunting Jesus. And yet, one of them comes to faith, and one of them does not. One of them cries out to the Lord, one of them does not. That's the only difference between them. These accounts uh, we have here show us, for us, what it is like. What the difference is. And the difference is, whether you are in Christ or in Adam, why did one come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and the other did not? The sovereign grace of God. The grace of God alone. That's the difference. That's the essence of salvation. It is not up to us. It is up to Christ. And these two the criminals show us the very nature of the gospel. Consider What happens here? Consider the criminal who cries out and is is brought into eternal salvation. He does no good work. Right? I mean, the example given here is he is unable to do anything, right? He is affixed, nailed to a cross, unable to do any good work. Did no good work as far as we know. He was a convicted criminal, a malefactor, probably what we would call a terrorist physically affixed to the cross. He could not lift a hand to save
1: Himself. He was dead and condemned in His trespasses and sins. And yet He is saved. There are two
0: great conversion stories in the scripture, really. The one is, of course, Saul of Tarsus, right? Saul has an amazing conversion experience. He did all of those awful things, persecuted, killed. He's there when the stoning of Stephen, right? It's all of that story. And yet when he's converted, it's this amazing thing. And he goes on to do great and glorious things for the Lord. Now consider this criminal on the cross. There are no glorious deeds for the Lord, either before salvation or after salvation. He does nothing. He can do nothing. All he can do is cry out to the Lord,
1: remember me. Remember me. You see, beloved, this criminal shows us and reminds us, is an
0: object lesson for us of the very nature of salvation, that the good news is, that salvation does not depend upon us, it depends solely upon God. In church history, this criminal, this thief, is often referred to as the good thief versus the bad thief. That's a misnomer. Raymond Brown points this out so well in his book on the Messiah. He says, there is no good thief here. There is no good criminal here. There is only a good Jesus here. It's all about Christ. Christ. All about his work of salvation. That's what the gospel is about. And that's what this criminal reminds us about. That salvation is all of God. That it's by grace alone we can't save ourselves. And you need to hear that. And you need to hear that week after week. I believe that's why God designed One Day in Seven. So that you could come and you could hear the gospel preached to you. Because you need to hear it every week. Sometimes when I proclaim the gospel, I'll get people to say, well, you know,
1: why are you preaching the gospel to us? We're already here. We believe. But Do you? Do you believe in the gospel or do you believe in your own strength? Do you believe in the gospel or
0: do you believe in some type of, you know, therapeutic moralism? Do you believe in the gospel or do you believe in yourself? You see, we are so prone to forget the good news of Christ that we need to have it pounded into our thick skulls every week. We are so prone to adulterate the good news that it must be proclaimed to us. Luther spoke about this. This need to preach it continually over and over and over again. Charles Spurgeon, in one of his sermons, as this story about Martin Luther, he writes, Martin Luther declared that he constantly preached justification by faith alone, because, he said, the people would forget it, so that I was obliged almost to knock my Bible against their heads, to send it into their
1: hearts. We're all a little spiritually hard-headed. We need to hear the gospel,
0: the gospel proclaimed, the good news proclaimed. Now Luther didn't say it quite like that, but he did say that idea. He spoke about the necessity to teach the gospel, to be reminded of the gospel. He said in his commentary to Galatians that we need to beat it into our heads continually. Why? Because we forget. We begin to trust in ourselves rather than in grace alone. Salvation is not something you earn. It's not something that you have done. It is something that is done for you. And in that truth is great comfort. And There's no better illustration, there's no better object lesson of that than that criminal on the cross who did nothing but cry out to Jesus and was saved that day. The last words of Jesus comfort us because they remind us of the true nature of the gospel. Let that comfort you. To know that your salvation depends solely and wholly upon Christ and not on yourselves. And second and finally this morning, these last words of Jesus comfort us by reminding us that salvation means that we belong to Jesus. Salvation is about belonging, that we belong to Jesus. And my favorite part of this whole account, my favorite part of Jesus' promise, my most favorite part of his last words here are those two little words he utters to this criminal, those two words,
1: with me. With me. Today you will be with me. Those two words, and in them is the nucleus, the core of the promise and the
0: hope of the gospel. What it's really about, this glorious thing that we have,
1: that we belong to Christ with me. Jesus is giving
0: this, this criminal uh, a promise of belonging. You will be with me because you belong to me. Where I am, you are there also. It's like that promise he gave to the disciples. He told them he was going away, but he would come back so that they could be where he was, belonging to Jesus, being with him. This is the essence of salvation, our hope. I read this past week in an article by James Bratt in the Reformed Journal entitled Dutch Reformed versus Evangelical Salvation, and he was pointing out the differences. And in the evangelical version of salvation, right, it starts with us, our choice about Jesus, that Jesus, in some ways, you know, belongs to us. So I gave myself to Jesus. Right? That it's something that we do, we initiate, and He belongs to us. But in the Reformed version of salvation, it starts with Jesus. Jesus calls us. It's His choice as we see here. And we belong to Him. His promise is that we will be with Him. And in that, that belonging to Jesus is found our solace and our comfort. What does our catechism say, right? The first question Phrased, what is your only comfort in life and death? And what is it? What is it? That I am not my own, but belong. That I am not my own, but belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior Jesus Christ. Isn't that an interesting way to phrase it? Right? He doesn't start out and say, What is your only comfort in life and death? That my sins are forgiven. That I made the right choice for Jesus. No, it says that I belong. And I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my favorite, faithful Savior Jesus Christ. This criminal on the cross reminds us that the true essence of salvation is belonging
1: to Christ, being with Christ, enveloped by the love of Christ, being part of his family. And this brings us back to where we began this morning. you could put up that painting again. I was reminded of this painting. It came to my mind this past week because last uh,
0: Sunday afternoon, as I was reading the New York Times, there was a piece in there, an opinion piece by David Brooks, and he brought this painting uh, up in his article. And he noted the history of the painting and Rembrandt's background and he talked about the essence of the painting, what's going on, and he, you can look at that. He, he talks first about the sinner, right? The prodigal there. You see him, how he's painted there, kneeling before his father, and how Rembrandt paints him so fragile. Like All this hair is gone. Like This is someone who's broken, who's bankrupt, who has lost everything, squandered it. He has nothing. He's like the criminal on the cross, right?
1: He has nothing to offer. Notice how Rembrandt paints that picture of belonging. How does he do it? He does it through that embrace,
0: right? The hands on the shoulders of the prodigal. This enveloping, this including, this bringing in, this sense
1: of belonging through the hands of the father on the shoulders. Isn't that amazing? It's evocative of belonging. You're back in the family. You belong here. You're mine. You belong to me. I am your father.
0: And Brooks goes on, as many uh, art historians have noted, if you really look closely at the two hands of the father, you will note that Rembrandt painted them differently. They're asymmetric. They're different hands. If you look real close, go home and look at it. You may not be able to see it there. But one of them is a masculine hand, a strong hand. And the other one is feminine. And it kind of evokes this idea of of parents, of of bringing this kind of parental love of mother and father, of family. It, It makes that even more powerful of an image. It's an idea of both strength and firmness and consolation and comfort. Like we do as children, where do we go when we are crying and hurt? We go to our mothers. At times when we need discipline or we need strength, we go to our fathers in various ways, right? Rembrandt is trying to paint that imagery that both of these elements are in our God, that our God is like this parent who enfolds us back. He's drawing that picture, and, and Henry Nouwen talks about this too, those hands that Rembrandt paints And it reminds him of Isaiah 49, 15, and 16, where God says this through his prophet. Can a woman forget her nursing child or show no compassion for the child of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. God says, yet I will not forget you. See, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hand. What is the promise of salvation? What is the promise of the gospel? It is that God will not forget us. Why? Because we belong to Him. And on that day when Jesus was on the cross, right in the midst of all that was going on, one sinner cries out to Him
1: and says, Remember me. And in that moment, Jesus turns and says to that sinner, I will. I will not forget you because you belong to me. Beloved, that is your solace.
0: That is your comfort. That is the true nature of the gospel. Because when Jesus Christ brings you into the kingdom of God by grace alone, He brings you into a family. He enfolds you with His hands of comfort and strength and consolation. And He says, I will not forget you.
1: Because you are mine. And no one can snatch you from my hand. hear
0: that good news again. Hear the good news of the Gospel and believe it, that you belong to Christ and that in that is your only comfort in life and in death. And if you have not cried out to Christ, cry out this morning. Cry out to Him and say, remember me.
1: And be comforted by the knowledge that those who cry out and call upon the name of the Lord, they will be saved. That Jesus turns to them and says, Today, you will be with me in paradise. Let's pray.